Welcome to the Physics Buzz Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. Today, our podcast is not so much a look at the physical world, but a look at how we learn about the physical world. Our physical intuition heavily influences how we experience and how we study the world around us. But when and how does that intuition develop? It turns out that this is actually one of the first things our brain starts learning when we are born. That's today on the Physics Buzz Podcast. Can you introduce yourself? Oh, we do. Hey, say hi. My nephew Jack is 13 months old. As a typical one-year-old, Jack is very limited in some areas. He's only just starting to talk. He's decent at walking. But his understanding of the physical world is actually quite excellent. He knows the difference between solid objects and the space between them. And as a result, he can navigate his way through a crowded room much, much faster than you would think he could. Uh, He can identify specific objects like his bottle or a favorite toy, and he can very quickly scoop it up, no problem. So these seem like very simple things, and yet scientists have not been able to build a robot that can independently match the physical intuition of a toddler. It actually requires a great deal of complexity in Jack's brain to make these physical abilities possible. Jack is building up his physical intuition, the same physical intuition that we carry with us into adulthood. This very early developing physical intuition is built on what cognitive psychologists call principles. Another way to think about these principles as working is that they allow infants to predict the behavior of objects um, or kind of form expectations about how objects are going to behave in the world. A system for predicting how the physical world will behave? That's physics in a nutshell. And I should introduce you to the person you just heard from. All right, um, I'm Christy Van Marl. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Missouri. Dr. Van Marl is a cognitive psychologist, and she studies what babies know about the physical world. When I say babies, we're generally talking about the first year of life, and as young as about two months old. So what are some of the principles that infants learn? They're basic things to adults. Solid objects won't pass through each other. Objects don't spontaneously move on their own. That is unless they are animate objects. And infants learn the difference between animate and inanimate objects in their first year or so. This is an example of how infants categorize things, also a scientific process. They also expect objects to uh, maintain their cohesion. So if you were to pick up, you know, your coffee cup, hopefully it's not going to just sort of fall apart when you touch it and try and lift it off of the table to take a drink. Um, of course, the liquid inside of the cup behaves very differently. And that's one of the fundamental distinctions between objects and substances. Uh, that's my daughter. Sorry. <laughs> we might be getting ahead of ourselves here because we're talking about things that babies know before they have any mastery of language. So how do we know what babies know? So they're quite young. It also limits exactly what we can um, do with the babies. Obviously, you can't ask them what they think about objects or substances or whether they treat them differently or think of them differently. So we have to devise these uh, kind of, they're sort of like magic shows, I suppose, in a way, um, where we violate an expectation that an adult would hold and see if the baby um, is uh, quote unquote surprised by that. 
um, which they show us by looking longer at these unexpected sorts of events relative to events that are in line with the principles or, or in which no principles have been violated. So if you show an infant a video where one solid object passes through another solid object, at some point in their first year, the babies are suddenly surprised by this event because it goes against what they know. One of the most well-known principles in child development is called object permanence. This is the idea that if an object is not in your field of vision, it still exists. This is something that parents are probably all too familiar with, as my sister Megan, Jack's mom, can attest. So when, like, he was really little and he would grab something that I didn't want him to have, you could just give him take it out of his hand and give him something else like replace it and he would forget about it but now he's smart enough to know when you take something away he'll follow wherever that goes even if it goes like out of the room or behind your back yeah he like when he was little he used to you could put it behind your back and then he would like wouldn't know it was there but now he follows it behind your back now he's smart enough to figure that one out <laughs> the initial scientist who pioneered the theory of object permanence was a guy named Jean Piaget. He believed that babies initially have one theory about objects. When the object leaves my field of vision, it no longer exists. So babies actively believe that the object does not exist. But Piaget thought that eventually babies gather enough information and basically say to themselves, that theory doesn't work. I'm going to form a new theory about these objects. But cognitive psychologists have changed their view on this. They no longer believe that babies start out with one theory and then switch to another. This is Dr. Susan Hespos, an associate professor at Northwestern University and also a cognitive psychologist studying infants in the physical world. It's not a case where you like have a theory and then you realize it's wrong and you throw it out and construct another one. What we know about neurology at this point and things like that is that as far as the brain construction is concerned, that would be a very costly system, like building up neural networks that think one way and then just throwing that network out and constructing a new one. It just doesn't really make sense in terms of like building, you know, if you were building a robot, you wouldn't have it go through stages. Um, it would be good to build it right the first time and then elaborate and do add-ons instead of this, um, you know, reconstruction. So specialists in this field want to know what information comes pre-programmed in our brains and what information do we learn along the way. It may not be that we have specific principles written out in our brains from the time of birth. What is more likely is that our brains are somehow built to be receptive to the right information. If we had to learn about the world from scratch, um, and people have suggested that this is how how uh, learning and development takes place, but it just seems to be an intractable problem. Um, there's too much knowledge out in the world for us to have to figure out first what's important and then learn that knowledge and ignore everything that's irrelevant or that you don't need to build into the system. Um, or, you know, if you had to depend on babies to develop physical knowledge through experience, it's going to take them a long time and, uh, and they may learn different things depending on their environment, right? Kids growing up in one part of the world in one type of environment might, might learn something, you know, quite different from, uh, from kids growing up in another area. But different people growing up in different parts of the world still develop the same principles, the same physical intuition. 
So this is a very important point in suggesting that our brains are not blank slates when we are born. It's really cool that, you know, everybody without any lessons at all decides that all objects are permanent or everybody decides to perceive objects and not the spaces between objects. Um, there must be something sort of hardwired about our perceptual systems. And this is probably shared not only, you know, among humans, which is amazing in its own right. You know, we're so varied and across cultures and languages and, you know, environments that we grow up in, but everybody comes up with these same damn ideas about how objects work. And that's really neat. And I don't even think it's limited to humans. I think my dog understands that an unsupported object falls down. And if I made a tennis ball float in midair magically somehow, he would be pretty amazed by that. And he would look significantly longer at that kind of a situation and investigate it. Dr. Hespos and Dr. Van Marl recently co-authored a review paper that brought together all of the research done in this area for roughly the last 30 years, and they noticed a few things. For one, a great deal of attention has been paid to what babies know about solid objects. In some ways, it's, it's legitimate, as Sue said, because babies do seem to have uh, a lot of ways for dealing with thinking about objects. Um, and specialized kinds of ways for thinking about objects. And even in other domains, um, adults seem to have privileged processing uh, for objects as well. So in, in many cases, the brain seems to be set up to focus on objects per se. Um, but that's not all that the world is made of. There's these other types of entities that behave very differently than objects do, um, things, uh, namely substances. And so it's of interest to kind of move beyond the, the focus on objects and see what infants might or might not know about these other types of entities in the world, which, uh, which is what, as Sue said, is, is kind of new about this paper. And this, once again, is a physics issue because liquids, gases, and granular materials are generally more difficult to study than solid objects. See, when we study these materials at the atomic or molecular level, we see that solid objects have their atoms or their molecules locked together in a more stationary arrangement. But other states of matter, those atoms or molecules are not locked into a rigid arrangement. In gases, they're barely bound together at all. So Dr. Hespos and Dr. Van Marl and other infant psychologists are now grappling with the question of how much do infants know about these other materials? You know, clearly, you know, the principles that apply to objects don't apply to liquids. So is it just that all bets are off when it comes to liquids or substances in general? Or is it that, you know, babies are really smart and maybe they have a different set of expectations on substances? When we want to know how our brains do the things they do, it's also helpful to ask why they do the things they do. What benefit do we get from knowing that solid objects don't float? And why do we learn these things so early on? Well, it seems that there may actually be evolutionary advantages. We don't have principled knowledge about just everything in the world. Um, there are those kinds of things that are probably or were probably very important for survival um, from an evolutionary standpoint, right? So you need to be able to interact with objects in the appropriate manner if you're going to feed yourself and catch dinner and, and so on, um, not like fall off of a cliff, for example. Um, so you don't just have principled knowledge about everything. Um, these skeletal principles then kind of keep you in shape and then you can elaborate that knowledge with your other experiences. 
So I do a lot of physics demonstration shows in classrooms. Uh, this is where I come in and I do fun experiments to get the kids excited about science. And the most popular demonstrations or experiments that I do are those that defy physical intuition. Like when I freeze a banana in liquid nitrogen and smash it like it's made of glass. This makes the kids go nuts. They love it. Even as adults, we still have this excited, curious response to things that defy our physical intuition. I mean, isn't that why non-physicists love quantum mechanics? Because principles like wave-particle duality and quantum tunneling and entanglement go against the very basis of what we understand about the physical world. We have this response to counterintuitive events that has evolved for our survival, but couldn't it also be part of what creates human curiosity? Sure, I think uh, I think that's a really interesting possibility. Um, you know, I I am a, a firm believer in sort of the the evolutionary function or the adaptiveness that something has is is in large part you know responsible for its appearance on the on the scene um, and the maintenance of that over over time. You know, uh, in a, in a species, um, in terms of whether or not it's because of these intuitions that we have that make you know, science and exciting field when you show them counterintuitive um, uh, outcomes or events. I, I think that's entirely plausible. Um, I think that would be hard to test, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's certainly a possibility. Obviously, counterintuitive events are not the only thing that we are curious about. They're not even the only thing we're curious about in science. But I just can't help but wonder if my love of physics started developing even before I could put it into words. That's all for the Physics Buzz podcast. I'm Cal Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more Physics Buzz.